We'll go through the main stories of the day in the newspapers and we're joined in studio by Bernice Harrison of the Irish Times, Ian O'Doherty, columnist with the Irish Independent and Ono Bryn, Sinn Féin TD for Dublin Midwest and their party spokesperson on housing. Good morning to you all. Good Good morning. morning. I have to say... For me, uh, even before we go to the newspapers, it is it, the story uh, of the match yesterday and the, the faces staring out from all the papers today are of Tony and Dan Foley, the young boys who were left without their father this day last week. We were unaware that Anthony Foley had passed away, but, uh, you know, Ian, you were watching the match yesterday. I mean, it was just this emotion that spurred the, the, the team on. What was remarkable about it is that it's one of the problems that a lot of people actually now have with modern sport is that every game seems to have a minute silence for somebody that they never heard of before. You know, and it's all part of the commodification and making it more family friendly and things like that. And that's fine. Um, but the difference was yesterday was a, a genuine, real emotion. And you could you could actually see, you could really see the difference between the having the minute silence for somebody that nobody really knew or actually a man who Im- genuinely impacted on people's lives. I mean, the funny thing is uh, everybody has a moment where it kind of hits them, you know, that kind of way. And with me, it was the fact that I just realised that um, I'm a year, I'm older than Foley, but I always thought he was older than me mm. because I always looked at him like he was a man and I was only a kid. Yeah. Even though I was older. Th- and, it, you know, if, you, if I thought about it logically, I would have gone, OK, well, he would have played junior JCT a couple of years earlier or whatever. But it was, he just had that aura about him. Like an awful lot of them, the Munster lads particularly, um, really had that thing about it. But there was a, a kind of a, there was an iconoclastic decency about Foley. You knew that he was never going to be the company man and all that kind of stuff, you know. And he represented, and he wasn't a phony. And in an era of professional sports where even some of the rugby players are now coming across, like, you know, footballers at times, like, you know, that disconnect between the punters and the, and the fans. Foley represented something. And it's easy to sort of, you know, when somebody dies to kind of wax lyrical and nobody really means it. But even to people outside of Munster, and you can see to people outside of Ireland, there was, uh, there was an old school about Foley. Mm. And, and Bernice, it was a most unusual mm. week because when somebody dies, we mourn. And we do funerals very well in this yeah, country. absolutely. But this was different. There, there was something about this that, that, I don't know, was it the amplification of, of the tragedy? Was it the fact, as Ian made out, that he was just such a good man that everybody... I mean, I, I was caught once or twice yesterday yeah. before the match and yeah. indeed afterwards watching that that group in the yeah. circle singing Stand Up and Fight and realising at the centre were these two young two boys. boys. Well, I think it was the age of the man. You know, a man in his early 40s. It's so tragic. And, and of course, the whole thing, a sportsman in their early 40s. So that makes everybody kind of go, oh, it sends a, ch- a chill. I, I listened to the match on the radio. I was in and out of the car all day yesterday and listened to it. And the, the reports really captured the emotion in the stadium. And that's rare. That's rare that it seems so real. I was like you. I was sort of oh caught off guard a couple of times. And when they at the the end when the players came out and, and sang on the pitch, apparently they always sing that song in the dressing room after yep, the stand match. Stand up and fight. Stand yeah. Oh, it, it was shivers down your spine stuff. It, it was very emotional. And I suppose this is sport at its best. This is why you you gravitate to sport. It's there's something pure about it, and there was something pure about it. I thought. Yeah, I mean, this is the emotion on. I mean, you just you couldn't get away from it. I know, as an Instra man, you probably uh, would have days when you wouldn't be rooting for Munster. But yesterday, I think everybody in the country was rooting for Munster, and, and they performed absolutely. Um, I was in Kilfiekel in Tipperary last uh, Sunday when the news broke, and in fact, I spoke with a number of people who were in school and played club rugby uh, with Anthony and I mean obviously we always speak well of somebody when they pass away but there was a real sincerity in how people were talking about and describing this person who even when they were in school and even when they were playing relatively low level club rugby uh, uh, felt he had a real impact on their lives I actually knew very little about the man before the news broke uh, it just rugby isn't a sport I follow a huge amount um, uh, but 
watching the scenes yesterday, the two things that struck me, and it's it's the same points everybody else has made, the intensity of the players on the pitch yesterday was just remarkable. Mm. Uh, now, rugby's a very intense game anyway, but very clearly there was something driving them on. And if you listen to some of the post-match interviews, uh, there was an emotion in the players uh, describing that they wanted to do uh, Foley proud by the delivery on the pitch in the day. Uh, and I have to say, uh, stand up and fight, that, mm. that, that image, I think that's the image that's that going to stay with people for well, a le- very long period of time. The- well, Keith Harris been sent off when he when he dumped him and he kicked the ball and he kicked it and he, you could see and it was one of those things. These are professional players, and this is the only time Keith Harris will ever be sent off his entire life. Where actually he'll probably get a pat in the back rather than mm. a kick in the arse when he gets into the dressing room. Yeah. But the things, what was brilliant about yesterday was that if you can re- use the word brilliant about such an occasion, was that this reminds somebody. It doesn't really matter that it was rugby. It's about sport Absolutely. and how in the midst of big business and everything else getting mm-hmm. into sport and scalpers and things like that, that, how sport is still the most wonderful creation that man has ever come up with. There was a, as, as Bernice mm-hmm. said, there was a purity to yesterday that transcended rugby. You know, I know people who can't stand rugby. They hated it from the time they were in school. This was not. This wasn't about rugby. This was. A, there, there was a, a particularly sort of pure and honest and unadorned thing that the sponsors hadn't got involved in this. This wasn't mm. something that yeah. you know. This was actually. Yeah. This was from the people by the people of the people. And it's know. it's funny. We often bemoan a lack of leadership in this country, or we question our leaders, and and we wonder why you should follow one and not the other. This was leadership at its purest. Well, I tell you, if, if Foley was doing the bailout uh, <laughs> negotiations, <laughs> I think we'd all probably be in a better position than right. we are now. Anyway, you know, as I you're, said, you're probably that, not wrong in that. that <laughs> dominates every paper this morning pictures uh, the front page of the Sunday Times has uh, the two boys Tony and Dan Foley with Simon Zebo man clearly very emotional yesterday with a tear running down his face uh, at the start um, Monster stand up and fight for Coach Foley is the headline there the other big story on the Sunday Times Higgins snubs pay rise as TDs face protests President Michael D Higgins will not take an increase in his 249,000 euro salary salary yes that's how much you pay the President as part of the unwinding of public sector pay cuts, according to his spokesman, his decision is likely to add to public pressure on TDs uh, to forego their €2,700 pay rise, which is due on the 1st of April under the Lansdowne Road Agreement. And if that wasn't good enough for them, they were due to get a second rise of 2700 which was scheduled for January of 2018. Of course, only a handful of them have said they're going to hand back the money so far. I suspect that's going to change as time goes on. The front page of the Sunday Independent, again, the two Foley boys standing next to the players, stand up and fight, and in full chorus as well. A lovely photograph. I have to say, Dan Foley will look back in years to come and see his shoelace was undone at these photographs, which is just a a bizarre thing to to spot in the photograph. But um, the main story there, Varadkar closes in on power. Poll shows huge lead over Coveney, but ministers warn of Kenny fight. Social Protection Minister Leo Varadkar now has the momentum to succeed Taoiseach Enda Kenny as leader of Fine Gael, according to Philip Ryan, and has taken a decisive lead over his nearest challenger, the Housing Minister Simon Coveney. That's according to a Sunday independent Cantar Millward Brown opinion poll. Uh, they also talk about strikes on their front page. Wayne O'Connor reporting parents fear hundreds of extra students will be forced to repeat their Leaving Cert exams next year as a consequence of the impending strike by secondary school teachers. The concern comes as it's revealed that the number of repeats rose by more than 26% in the year after the last ASTI dispute, which was many, many, many years ago at this stage. I'm 2000. 2000, yeah. So they're going back 16 years they've managed to dig up those figures somehow. A drama at the Abbey is the front of the Sunday Business Post. Um, the NAMA to be probed over theatre deal. PAC to quiz agency over off-market deal for prime site. Sean Fleming, who of course is the chair of the PAC, expressing concern over the lack of NAMA transparency. Uh, they also have 
two issues uh, relating to strikes on their front page. Disillusioned teachers deserting ASTI to avoid pay losses. Hundreds of disillusioned teachers with the ASTI have joined a rival union to avoid suffering crippling pay losses. The ASTI had around 18,000 members at its peak, but according to its own figures, it had 17,650 last month and it has fallen now to 17,500. I put this to the ASTI on more than one occasion and they have insisted that during a dispute, and let's face it, there have been a fair few in Involving the ASTI, mm. you cannot change trade unions. Mm. There is an inter-union rule that prevents, but their numbers have dropped anyway, according to what it's, the Sunday Business Teachers have to be in unions. Is it compulsory? No, and in no, fact, no. They, the, the teachers who currently aren't in any unions uh, are also being penalised. So even if they supported individually uh, the Lansdowne Road But I would have thought it would be very bad form for one union to poach members it's, from another well, from, first of all it's, it's, it's heavily frowned upon uh, now keep in mind the rule about disputes uh, is, is applicable when a formal dispute uh, is started and you're not in that situation at the minute clearly people are free to, to move from one union to another if, if they so choose and the, there are schools that are split between TUI there are, and, and there are there are in all schools there are also uh, uh, teachers who aren't in unions um, I mean, when you read the detail of the Sunday Business Post story it, it, the, the numbers are a little sketchier um, mm. so I think there's more to be heard on that story before and we know we the full know truth of it do we know our younger teachers foregoing joining unions or not? Well, I think that, they, that would be they, an interesting they, they, they have to sign up if they're going to benefit and they benefit quite handsomely from, mm. from what we're hearing. And they're also talking about the guards on the front of the Sunday Business Post. Guardy stay tight-lipped on the issue of politician security. They've refused to be drawn uh, whether leading officials will be left without their guard the drivers during next month's planned strike. Of course, not everybody mm-hmm. has a guard the driver anymore, but the Taoiseach has and the Minister for Justice has and a few others have as well. At the Sunday World, I will never forget you. Is there um, front page story? It's uh, Mick Gall. Uh, Axel, my old pal, I miss you, I love you, I'll never forget you. Fans give legend Foley a Thoman send-off to remember. And uh, the front of the mail um, has the Anthony Foley story as well. Uh, tiny, uh, They have 10 pages on the inside, it's quite small on the front page. Uh, housing charity scandal is their lead story. Social housing chief had council flat in London while working here, paid back mobile phone costs after MOS investigation resigned this week. Um, but they also talk about Poldark. I don't know if anyone was watching Poldark, mm-hmm. but quite a controversial scene coming which we'll talk about later on as well and uh, Strictly Come Dancing which we most certainly will not be talking about <laughs> later on in the programme oh, oh, I, <laughs> I know Ian O'Darty is just chomping at the bit <laughs> to talk about Strictly but we'll avoid it we'll avoid it um, I want to talk about the strikes um, Conor Brady has a very interesting piece in, in the Sunday Times mm. Like an audience at a medieval morality play, we all know the outcome of the struggle now being acted out between the state and a minority of its powerful employees. At the end of the performance, the government will give in. It always does when a powerful sector decides to hurt the community. It is politically unsustainable to allow schools to be shut our streets to go unpleased, just as it was politically unsustainable to have transport services shut down. Ian O'Doherty, he's right. Well, I think there's a difference between we should differentiate between the teacher strike and the Garda strike. Um, for starters, unlike the teachers, the Garda actually swore an oath of loyalty to the state to protect the state. Um, they didn't swear an oath of loyalty to their <coughs> union lead or their their body leadership or, or the government is to the state. I think it's absolutely outrageous. I think, I mean, the idea of, you know, a, a, a national police force going on strike and announcing when they're going to go on strike. I mean, I was saying in the end of yesterday, I mean, that's a bit like having an army that only fights during business hours and never at the weekend. You know, you know when you want to invade. And we have the situation where we already have sort of widespread fear in rural areas, particularly when it comes to burglaries and things like that. We're going to have a situation, I wouldn't want to be a postman delivering any letters on any of the days when the cops are on strike in case somebody is twitchy and they just decide to shoot you down in some rural neighbourhood. They are walking the country 
into potentially into absolute anarchy. Do, actually, do you not have any sympathy for? I have for a lot of sympathy for them. I, I, I have a lot of sympathy for the uh, conditions that they're under. Um, Absolutely. I'm not somebody who just sort of bashes the cops. I hate that reflexive kind of anti-Gardy thing. It's really lazy. It's really easy. But on a situation like this, if you basically withdraw your labour under these circumstances, they should, I do actually think they should be sacked. I mean, I think... You can't sack them all. Well, you can't... Hold on. Well, you can, you you can get... I mean, as Brady was saying in his piece, I mean, you can't actually sort of train somebody. Here's the thing. If they're going to start threatening well, then people need to start... The authorities need to start negotiating back. We can't have a situation where any any arm of the state can hold the rest of us to ransom like this. Bernie's house. Well, uh, Conor Brady, uh, that whole sack them all. Conor Brady, uh, and it's, he says it's a fantasy. He, he brings up Ronald Reagan in, in 1981 when the air traffic controllers threatened to strike. That would halt aviation across America. Reagan gave them 48 hours to consider and then sacked 11,500 of them. And, and the, So he says, you know, this technically, notionally could happen that when the state was formed, you know, in 1922, they were able to muster up a police force in six months so he's but ultimately saying look uh, the state is borrowing almost 40 million a week uh, and that's on top of a rise in revenue that's already we ca- he's basically saying we can't afford it though the politicians will capitulate it's sort of his piece is basically you know the the, the old dog for the long road he's seen this before and what's re- what, this is what he's that's saying what's and what's really worrying is that basically we have both sides now effectively threatening to press the nuclear option um that is if, if you were a doctor looking at us as a body you would say this is a very sick body um, when you have a situation where literally, you know, the, the, the guardians of security in the state are talking about basically downing tools. Um, this is the kind of thing you would expect to see in a third world country where corruption has run so much that basically there isn't enough money left to pay the cops. This is, a, this is an incredibly bad thing. But there, 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 there is money on the table here, mm. Brin. This is, it's, We are in a situation now whereby nobody is talking about taking money off anybody anymore. It's a question about how quickly they're going to get it back. And you look at the editorials today while there is sympathy for the guards in the situation they have found themselves in, um, there is not much sympathy for the fact that they're all going to down tools and walk out on the same day. Well, first of all, no guard wants to strike. Uh, and I've been talking to uh, a number of guards, partly because I work, I suppose, with community guards and guards on the ground in, in the constituency. Uh, and they're the last people uh, of anybody who wants this strike to go ahead. But the fact that it's got to the stage where the guards are threatening strikes shows you how deep the problems are within Angarda Shiakona. Part of it is about pay. Part of it is about huge increases in workload and reductions of staff over the last number of years. Uh, and part of it is is uh, uh, poor management and poor supervision. And in many cases, no training whatsoever. I mean, the very idea that we think it's acceptable or the government thinks it's acceptable to offer an entry-level guard a net pay per week of €377. Mm. Euros. Uh, and these are people who are on the front line defending yeah. our community. So... Let's not beat up on the guards, and I know neither of our spokespeople have done that today, but also let's not feed some of the kind of hysteria that's in some of the newspaper articles. There are deep-seated structural problems that need to be resolved, and what we need is we need serious dialogue between the trade union representatives mm-hmm. or the representatives of, of, of the, the guards at various levels and the government. And, and here's the thing, pay restoration is happening. Um, the issue is it's not happening, in my view, in the right way. And therefore, uh, even within the financial uh, framework that the government has accepted, there needs to be a serious negotiation to try and, first of all, in the first instance, address the most egregious uh, problems in terms of but poor pay. But they're not doing that. But, but, they're they're but setting no. up a commission that's going to look at all of this. You've so 90% what, of the trade unions what, are happy what, with Lansdowne. What, what they need to do is much more than that. So first of all, they need to tackle uh, the poorest and lowest levels of pay, particularly for the entrance levels, whether it's in the teachers, 
teachers or in the guards. But what the government also then need to do is outline what their roadmap is to get to where we all want to go, which is people having decent pay for decent work. I mean, the idea that you can pay two people doing exactly the same job in the same place, substantially different rates of pay, what does that do? It doesn't just send a signal uh, that you're not uh, paying people properly. But experience should be paid more. Oh, absolutely. But but experience over one or two years uh, shouldn't be uh, differentiated by that level. But how much of it is down in this particular dispute to the individual younger teachers who came in at the worst time and ultimately the real issue which is that everybody wants the money back that they had in 2008 and they can't get that now because but as nobody, the Sunday Business look, Post we all, makes we all, it, we're, we all live we're in the, under we, siege from We all live camps. in the real world and, and teachers can add and subtract like the rest of us, right? So they know well, that you're better not... better than the rest of us, hopefully. Hopefully. <laughs> uh, certainly better than I can anyway, but you're not going to get 100% pay restoration for all sectors and public sector uh, uh, professions all in one go. What people want to see is a more credible roadmap and again in Sinn Féin's view, you have to start with the lowest paid, then the middle paid and then at some later stage those people who are... are, are, are up or, uh, uh, in the pay scales, but they want and, it, and the point is they want it now. No. They don't no, want they, it they, in two they, years. What, 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 they, what, the, what they're saying is the roadmap the government has outlined is not acceptable, and I have to say they're right. So what we need is serious negotiations. Everybody step back from the brink, and you can resolve. And it's not about capitulating; it's about negotiating, and agreeing a sensible route out of the difficulties. But let's accept there are real problems there in the first place. The, this is one of these issues where there tends to be great confusion about it. I mean, I did, in any situation like this, I will always support the workers. There's a big difference between supporting the workers and supporting the unions. Um, I think the unions are the problem in this situation, uh, not the union members and not management. But the problem, a lot of the unions seem to think that the Irish are naturally inclined to support strikes, that we have this thing of supporting the underdog. And I've I've been looking at this, going back over the last few years, the support for strikes has actually been minimal. It's it's almost what I referred to yesterday, it's the Dunn-Store syndrome, that because people supported the Dunn-Strikers back in the day so much, that there is this sort of, you know, idea out there that we will if we get a chance now just because you won't cross a picket line doesn't necessarily mean you're supporting a strike and there is a difference between the Duns people who are doing it for conscience and a great personal cost and all we're seeing now with these uh, strikes from the Lewis uh, workers the, the, the bus drivers and things like that it's all about bread and it can be boiled down to the motto is because we want it because we said so and, and uh, there will be Bernice I suspect and I it can be proven wrong in this day one of the strike just from my own mm. reporting and from picket lines over the years, you will have support and you'll yeah. people honking your horn mm. and you'll say, go on, you're doing the right thing. Mm. Day two, it's yeah. dwindling. Day three, Well, it's I mean, gone. the guards is such a different issue from anything else. Mm. I, I mean, when the bus drivers went on strike, you know, whether you supported or not, you could still get to where you were going. I'm not sure people are going to feel the same if they can't ring the guards, if they don't see a guards on the street. But, but it's, would you agree it's almost like they're breaking a covenant? Well, I'm not people, sure. I, I think when you hear the low wages of entry-level Gardaí, it's completely impossible. It does not make sense to pay Gardaí going in at that level lower than the average industrial wage. It completely Lower, lower than you would get in Lidl or Tesco's or Dunn stores. It completely does not. For but a whole variety well, of reasons. Well, then you reasons. can say, why did they sign up for it then? You know, I mean, this is, it would be different if all of a sudden... Well, first of all, they... they, they I got a 10% pay cut a couple of years ago. They didn't ago, sign right? up for it. And, uh, these no, these changes were imposed unilaterally. No trade union no. and no worker agreed to the Everything changes. Knows. The important the thing is much changes sympathy, in entry level pay. A, a genuine sympathy. I mean, like you hear some of the stories of some of the, the younger cops and what they're on and you go like, I mean, how can you live like this? Mm. I mean, nobody is denying that. Nobody is saying that they're earning enough and they're being greedy. But to go about it in this way, I think it's genuinely, this is the worst thing I've ever, this is the worst piece of industrial action in this country I've seen in my lifetime. But what it displays is, is the absolute frustration 
of the absence of a process whereby whether it's guards or teachers can seriously engage well, to have no their, consolation their, to you if their, you're a victim of crime if you're a victim of crime and we live in like one of the most litigious countries in Europe I can only imagine the amount of civil suits they're going to go in against the cops basically for people who are victims of crime now, and they're striking the, 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 the rationale here is that Lansdowne Road is one deal that cannot be unpicked if you pull one strand the whole thing falls apart there is an argument that you take the guards out of it First of all, Lansdowne Road comes to an end next year mm. uh, and we're already in a process whereby the next uh, uh, pay agreement is is about to be negotiated. So now is the time to start having these kinds of conversations and these discussions. Well, and would, again, that, would that take the anger out of it? For me, in an industrial scenario, anger is a useless emotion. It gets you nowhere. In fact, all it does is get you to the picket line faster. We need to take the anger out of it. And how you do that is everybody steps back from the brink everybody gets around the table and starts to negotiate and to accept that there are really serious genuine issues both of pay and of conditions and of workload there's also issues of cost of living I mean if you take and this applies to the public and private sector if you take a low to middle income family uh, they've seen significant erosion of their wages at a time when prices are rising whether it's rent or health costs or, or education costs and people are really squeezed just at the same time as the government is telling them that there's recovery and things are getting better. So let's not uh, scapegoat anybody here. Let's urge the government to engage with the various representative bodies of the different workforces and actually, tackle and these the, problems. And the Kenny and his overselling of the recovery in advance of the last election, which really a lot of people resented because none of us have actually seen it. There's a difference between you know a government accountant seeing something on a balance sheet and what we're actually seeing. And that, but the funny thing is that I, I was reminded of Kenny watching the debate between Hillary and uh, Trump the other night. She was making the same mistake of talking about this incredible recovery that America's having. But the problem is, is that she doesn't even understand. Most ordinary Americans aren't seeing it. And it's the same thing that we're seeing over here. And this is what makes everybody, I mean, I'm not a Fianna Gala, but it's why people resent being told, we're, we're, we're getting there, we're getting there. And as we see from the amount of industrial disputes that we're seeing, we're not getting there. And people aren't seeing that we're getting there. Well, and and at, a time, at a time when TDs are about to accept a very substantial pay rise in, in, in any sense, it's fatally fatally, absolutely not it fatally undermines the authority of government to say to a guard who's earning 377 euros net a week uh, that they can't engage in a serious resolution when you say we're rushing to the picket lines I'll make the point that I made last week can I just say this where is the private sector rushing to the picket lines because it's not there there is no rush to the picket lines if you actually look at the figures over the last number of years you've had some of the lowest level of days lost in the public and private sector of any EU member state in fact the unions have been a restraining factor in industrial actions and even with even 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 with the Lewis drivers if you if you believe the news coverage in fact it was the shop stewards and the workers on the ground who were pushing the, well, the, the we, harder we'll line have to than see, the uh, management. We, well we'll see a dramatic increase I suspect in the number of days lost to strike in those CSO stats for well, November Jonathan, of things you know that the thing is if I go on strike tomorrow, well, I, my bosses probably wouldn't care very much or they wouldn't notice. But I mean, the thing is, they just get somebody else in. This is the problem that when you work in the private sector, we know you, you can't go on strike because they just get somebody else. It's a simple. That's the reason. I'm not saying that as whether it's good or bad. It's like the, the weather. It's just the situation. The anger that is. that is being channelled by the unions on behalf mm. of the ASTI teachers and the guards is the same anger that and is And I'd just like to point out on the record sector. that I'm uh, to my bosses if they're listening, I'm actually not planning on going on strike <laughs> tomorrow. <laughs> entirely hypothetical He's situation. the article written already. He well, wrote it two weeks ago. Well, Justine McCarthy has a, has a very good counterpoint to this. You know, so so all the other articles are talking about the anger building up in, in, in you know, the, the sort of the dynamic forces building up in the unions towards strike and so on. 
and she is talking about the sluggishness in Leinster House and she's pointing out that having returned from nine weeks of summer holidays in September 27th the doll will have sat for just 15 days when its denizens scatter once again next week this time on their week long Halloween break they get a Halloween break are they teachers? What? If if they strike next week would we notice? (laughs) Would we notice? Anyway this is the Sunday show lots more to come our panel reviewing the newspapers Bernice Harrison Ian O'Doherty and Owen O'Brien we'll come back in just a few minutes play with us the big international developments this week have been in Iraq the retaking of Mosul uh, a lot of coverage devoted to it in the Sunday newspapers and Christina Lamb who is a war-hardened journalist I think is probably the best description you can put on her um, has been taking accounts from Yazidi survivors of ISIS Uh, uh, there's a very compelling photograph on the front page of the magazine in the Sunday Times and she describes it as the hardest story that she has ever written it struck me Ian O'Doherty when you know, you're reading these reports. It is akin to the Americans and the Russians reaching the concentration camps and reporting for the first time the scale of the horrors that were contained therein. Yeah, I think it's actually probably even more like the, the Eastern Front and the Belarusian Front, where there were a thousand villages wiped out by the Germans from 1942 to 1943. That people don't oh, in the West, it's something that we don't really understand, and the scorched earth thing that you know, the, and and the Great Terror. And honestly, you look at what's gone over what's been happening over there for the last three years it's actually like something from a Cormac McCarthy novel or something it is almost one of those things of think of the worst thing you can possibly imagine they have actually gone and done it to civilian population it's it's and the things we can say that Bush shouldn't have gone in all those years ago we can say that Obama shouldn't have come out and withdrawn all those years ago the simple fact of the matter is that as things stand now you have five different parties all of whom are fighting each other you have the Russians who are doing their best to turn Aleppo into Grozny and this is the thing people are talking about like it's like Gar- the Guernica for our generation and I actually think if anything it's more like Grozny because a bit like Grozny it's been used almost as a weapons training uh, range or something like that I mean it, it, it's just you know th- when you see them using bunking, bunker busting bombs in a, on a desert environment you're going like they're not doing that Unless they're doing it for a reason to try and find out why, what results they can get. I mean, it's just because it's so insanely disproportionate. And I would actually have a lot of sympathy for the Russians in the region. They want the warm weather port. They're chased off at the Americans, haven't been basically mocking them for the last 20 years. But when you see something like this, you're going, there is genuinely a crime, an atrocity against humanity going on at the moment. And all we're doing is sitting around going, should we sign a motion condemning Russia? Who cares? Mm. Who cares about a motion? Well, you know? uh, Christina Lambs, uh, uh, that's all that military talk. Christina Lambs really does put a, a very human human face on it when she's talking about the fate of these Yazidi women and girls, girls really trapped in Mosul and, and her piece starts with bomb us or rescue us but don't leave us here was the terrible plea from a young Yazidi woman inside Mosul to the outside world and these are young girls uh, very very young girls who have been used uh, rape being a weapon of war and that is what they have been used at by the ISIS fighters and there's now a fear that when Mosul is stormed if it is because also that's where we're reading in the reports in the papers that while it is a you know a very military operation and there's all maps and arrows and everything this is not a foregone conclusion this is taking much longer than they thought and the enemy here is a particularly nasty enemy and they're, she, they're uh, killing hundreds of young men I mean the type of thing you do at the worst height of a war but they're an enemy the that's turned men. and run when they come up against decent Kurdish units She's added, mm. she ends with women and children held captain by the Islamists especially uh, from minorities such as the, the Yazidis are at extreme risk there is a grave danger that ISIS fighters will not only use them, use such vulnerable people as human shields, but may opt to kill them 
rather than see them liberated. What is it, Bernice, that, that shields us? against this inhumanity because this has been going on these women have mm. been in this situation yeah. for years mm. and we knew about it mm. and we've done as a, as a Western society nothing I don't know I don't I, I and the most, the but, most then we, but then the, the Western and the Americans sorry uh, all, well, all I was going to say is as a small country the most immediate and practical thing we can do is take the fair share of refugees mm. fleeing this appalling yes. war uh, uh, and we're failing in that respect. Uh, there was talk of taking up to 4,000. Only a tiny number of those people have been given sanctuary here. Uh, so, while our, our diplomatic power on the world stage is obviously very limited, we can do at least that very minimum. Well, no, I think we should be careful not about not reacting with the heart and that, actually thinking well, no, no, the, the brain. The, the, we're seeing the situation the, the, you know, in Europe with the refugees. The, we, need, the, we need to reasonably the, screen we these do, people. But the, the, the number of refugees that the government has uh, agreed to take is tiny, absolutely tiny in comparison to the countries who are in the immediate perimeter, both mm-hmm. inside and outside the EU, uh, of the war zone. What we also then need to do is we need to use the limited diplomatic power that we have as a state to to ensure that those who are responsible for this conflict pull back from the brink. So, for example, one of the reasons why we had difficulty with the Fianna Fáil motion I earlier, was just going to say, and just to expa- yeah, yeah. explain to people, it's in the Sunday Independent on page 12 today, uh, next to a picture of a puppy, which uh, it doesn't it doesn't relate to your story. Uh, Sinn Féin put on defensive over refusal to censure Putin, a party accused of being a part of a pro-Russian alliance after snubbing war crimes motion. I think it's Fianna Fáil who are it saying is. Europe. Are you part of a pro-Russian alliance? Ab- uh, absolutely not. And in fact, our, our real problem with the Fianna Fáil motion was it's not consistent what the United Nations is saying about the conflict which is it is not just Russia who's uh, in breach of international law and we've been very critical of that it's also ISIS and it's also Turkey and in fact ISIS and Turkey were uh, notably absent from the Fianna Fáil motion our problem was it wasn't critical of all of those belligerents who according to the United Nations uh, are in breach of international law and international the only reason why the United Nations haven't come out and condemned Russia is because Russia's on the Security Council and they Absolutely. have a veto over um, any condemnation um, which again further proves why the UN is a completely pointless mm, organisation but, but Here's, here's, here's how you do this stuff properly. Uh, I actually think motions in the Dáil do have some uh, value, not in terms of the day-to-day realities of people uh, gripped with the war. But if you want to uh, uh, send a signal and if you want to use your diplomatic power, you sit down and you craft a motion collectively across all political parties, as we did recently, for example, on the case of Ibrahim Halawa. Uh, and then you use that to say this is the considered view of the democratically elected parliament of the state. Fianna Fáil are guilty of playing a little bit of politics, which I think is wrong. But we have been very critical of Putin, but we also need to be critical equally of ISIS, equally of, of Turkey. Uh, and we need to use the diplomatic weight that the state has in the European Union and the United Nations uh, to change the direction of, okay. of policy in the region. Well, the other part of the world, of course, that uh, is upsetting us right now, and we spend an awful lot more time talking about this than we do uh, about the Middle East. By the way, if in relation to whether war was ultimately a path to peace in the Middle East, there was a good discussion uh, on Aleppo and Mosul on Talking Point yesterday. It's up on the website as a podcast. But we spend a lot more time talking about this guy and whether he's going to get the presidency mm. of the United States. It looks like he's not. And if uh, again, with, there's plenty of evidence, but if you were looking for evidence of how duplicitous Donald Trump is, let's listen to what he told a cable channel called NY1 in 2008. The subject of the conversation? Well, it only happened to be his current rival, Hillary Clinton. Well, I think her history is far from being over. I'd like to answer that question in another 15 years from now. I think she's going to go down at a minimum as a great senator. And I know Hillary and I know her husband very well. They're fine people. So, Bernice Harrison, was he lying then or is he lying now? <laughs> well, well, there is, as you say, a lot of coverage of, of, of Donald Trump in the paper. Marion McKeown has got a really fantastic piece, I think, in the Sunday Business Post. She was in Vegas after the debate and she is sort of 
talking what's going to happen afterwards. Her piece is very much he's going to lose and she's saying that he now resembles a slowly deflating balloon even with his inner circle subtly retreating as they considered how to best salvage their careers once the cyclone has passed. And she particularly mentions um, Kellyanne Conway uh, and she, she strikes me as a little bit like Comical Ali, the guy who's come out to defend <laughs> oh, Saddam Hussein. She's, she's a smart operator. She she's been so doing good work for 20 years. She's actually probably the smartest person on the campaign. She just picked the wrong guy. She picked the wrong guy. And then the uh, foreign policy advisor, General Michael Flynn, who uh, McKeown says he left immediately after the debate. He didn't even hang around Trump Towers. He knows it's over. Uh, and he's now trying to have to, re- to rehabilitate his career. Uh, and that's what this is all about. It's a good take on it. It's a good but sideways take on it. If I was better at the internet, I wouldn't have had to put it up on Twitter. But people might remember there's an episode of The Simpsons where Mr. Burns is running for election, and the cameras around in the Simpsons household, and they open up a fish, and he's going to, you know, for dinner, and it's Mr. Blinky. He has three eyes, yes. and all the, all of Burns's campaigners just go, "Right, I'm out," and they all leave. And basically, that's what we've been seeing for the last couple of weeks. I would have defended up until fairly recently. I was defending Trump. Yeah, yeah. Um, I have heard you oh, defend yeah. Trump. No, because the thing is, I'm, I mean, if he'd made you know, Doherty change his mind, then he's no, really. Did you just do is, that? Just I, because? No, actually, because I, I quite like I, I quite like his uh, views on foreign policy. And actually, the funny thing is, domestically, so ordinarily, what he'd views, be more. Sorry, what views on foreign more, policy? Um, I like the idea of screening. I like the idea of a proper border in the southern things. I like the idea not of a, a not a wall, though, Ian. Hold on. Ian wants a wall around the M50, Linda. <laughs> <laughs> not just not just at no, Mexico. No, I, I softened my stop, tone on that stop, one. Actually, stop the country people but coming in to pollute the civilised ways of us Dubliners. One of the things that I really, you know, stuck in my craw was the kind of very lazy, liberal, sneery attitude, not towards just Trump, but basically towards the idea that anybody who supports Trump is obviously some hick from the Appalachians who has one tooth between the entire family and they're all <laughs> morons. You know what I mean? Um, the simple fact of the matter is that the issue is far more complex than that. And Trump is finished and you could see it the other night. I mean, and I, you know, good riddance. And the thing about it is, I feel very disappointed in Gary Johnson, who was the libertarian who ended up blowing the whole thing, right? He could have actually made the libertarians a, a, a viable third party. I feel incredibly... Um, disappointed and angry with Trump because he's basically managed to take a whole very legitimate point of view that doesn't be expressed very often and he's turned it into a complete laughing stock. There was the, an amazing moment during the debate the other night and that was the bit was like stick a fork in him, he's gone. And you could see this realisation in his eyes nearly coming through. Was that what he called the nasty, nasty woman yes. comment, was it? Um, no, it was sh- shortly before that. The nasty woman was because he was getting more annoyed. And the thing about it is, and this really sticks in my craw, Hillary was a better performer. It's as simple as that. For, for, so me, one of the, for, for one Trump, of the, the showman, at the end of the day, mm. Hillary was actually, I mean, she did her homework and one she was of the better performer. One of the most interesting, for me anyway, one of the most revealing things this week in this mad saga that is the presidential campaign, uh, it was it Frank Luntz, is that the name of the... Yeah, the, the you know, poster had, who gets he, everything wrong. He, but he had a focus group, which was what was more interesting, uh, and the focus group was, you know, Democrats and Republicans. And the one question that he asked, which really struck with me, was how many of them would have preferred if their parties had uh, uh, nominated different mm. candidates? Oh, yeah. And almost everybody in the room, Republican, Democrat, didn't want the candidate from their own parties. Yes. Mm. Which, which says a lot about this race that, I mean, I, I couldn't vote for either of them. Uh, Donald Trump is far more objectionable than Hillary Clinton, but Hillary Clinton isn't somebody I could support either. But you actually have a race for the most important political office in the world. In the world. And the overwhelming majority of the electorate in that race don't want either of well, them I mean, to the, have the, the job. Is, I mean, what, there it's was just, one, it's bizarre. There was one very good line from one of the American uh, analysts and he went, a lot of the American people basically think that Hillary should be in handcuffs and Trump should be in a straitjacket. That's the, you know, and it's a case of basically who can hold their nose the most when they go in to mm. vote. I mean, it's actually, <coughs> on one level, 
the, the more nihilistic side of me just tries to laugh at it because it's so incredibly absurd and it is yes, very the more nihilistic side you doesn't have access to nuclear weapons which is probably what whoever the loony tune who gets in is going to have well you know it's a, yeah it's, it's slightly more complex than that but I mean I, I do think that I mean as I said I mean Trump is toast I blame the Republican uh, establishment themselves it was almost like a joke that went on for way too long they fed, too they fed the beast they, too they much they fed the beast and they blew it I mean I would have loved to have seen actually maybe something like Kasich against Biden you know two fundamentally de- decent men who aren't mad and you know we've, we've basically reached the stage now where the, lar- the bar is so low in American politics it's like can we just get somebody who isn't completely bonkers is it just and just to finish up on this point is it a bit of a disappointment that the first woman who's going to be elected president is so unpopular for her policies in the past and does that overshadow the fact that we're going to have the first female president of the United States I, you know, I mean, even though Elizabeth Warren would be much further to the left, I'd have an awful lot more time for Elizabeth Warren than I would for Hillary. I mean, the, the thing is, Hillary is basically, I've, I've said this for years, I mean, her and her husband are the Bonnie and Clyde of Washington politics, like, you know what I mean? Um, she, everybody she touches turns to dust. You know, she's the Medusa touch, not the Midas well, touch. She'll have, um, she'll have great fun um, filling the, her cabinet. But that's the, 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 the thing is, it's the Supreme Court. It all boils down to the Supreme Court. Now, I'm pro-choice, but when I saw Hillary defending partial birth abortions the other night, that was another moment where I go, do you know what? Nah. You know, and this is coming from somebody who's pro-choice. Bernice, you're biting your, you're biting your lip there. Well, I think when you start using expressions like partial birth abortions, I just don't even know what we're talking about anymore. Well, um, look at Kermit Gosnell. Kermit Gosnell was a was the, yeah, the we, abortion we, we, doctor, we, we, right? We, we, we you look at, so it's not. I mean, Hillary is trying to make it out to be a myth. I don't think there's anything particularly. You know, I'm hardly a religious fundamentalist. I don't think there's anything particularly fundamental about turning out and saying that anybody who has a deep moral repugnance of something like partial birth abortion that's not an unreasonable position. To okay. On oh, your area, is specialty is housing. Yes. And of course, we had a change in the finance bill this week to those new um, first-time buyers grants or whatever you want to call them um, down to 70% now of loan to value is it going to work? No, the scheme is completely crackers and it's not just crackers and paper there have been other countries around the world who have introduced these types of so-called uh, first-time buyer schemes uh, and they failed and the reason why is house prices aren't just determined by demand, supply and demand they're also determined by access to credit so if you make credit easier for people to get even though that sounds like a good thing it drives up house prices the crazy thing, though, is is not only are, are Fine Gael all over the place on it, uh, introducing a scheme, you know, what first-time buyer buys a house at five hundred to 600000 anyway? anyway um, yeah, sure. uh, what first-time buyer is only buying a mm. new build rather than a second-hand home? But Fianna Fáil, if you saw the Irish Times yesterday, are also all over the place. I mean, their own proposal originally was actually a very similar scheme. Mm. People would have only got five to €10,000. It would have been for first new homes and second-hand homes. Um, but it would have driven up house prices just the same. But you now have all of their Dublin TDs coming out and criticising Barry Cowan. So, for example, you have uh, uh, the Dublin TDs saying 600000 is a reasonable amount. It should be left at that. Why cap the uh, the tax rebate at 20000 You know, surely it could go up. So, in fact, Fianna Fáil all over the place. But the crucial thing is this. The scheme will drive up house prices and make it more difficult for the first-time buyer. Mm. The focus has to be on reducing the cost of yeah. producing yeah. the units. But the argument is that it's, it's driven up prices but, but already. Can I... Can I, can I can I say this though? Sorry, I just because this is important. The Dáil uh, Housing and Homeless Committee that met for seven weeks spent a lot of time looking at this, uh, uh, and we listened to a lot of expert opinion. And the recommendation we made to government, and that was a cross-party committee that had support from all parties, bar one. We said, look, 
you need to focus on reducing the cost of producing the units. We asked that the government get the housing agency to do an annual audit. It would only take two or three months, and this was back in June, to look at the all-in cost, compare that with other comparable EU member states and make recommendations as to how to bring the cost down. Government ignored that key recommendation. That's what they need to do because, unfortunately, we actually don't know across the country what it takes to, yeah. well, to produce the, the cost the, the of a unit. The problem is, if we interfere at all, mm. Bernice, mm. with the housing market, we cause only one yeah, effect, which is to yeah, push prices up. We have up. no great record of putting in any policies that have benefited anybody. Uh, any time there's government interference, it hasn't been good. Um, I, this, this rebate thing, it seems inordinately complicated. It seems to be predicated on the fact that there are houses to buy. There aren't houses to buy. Demand is so, our supply has been so slow coming on. They keep saying this is part of a suite of measures, you know, this bizarre term. Where are the rest of them? Uh, so there doesn't seem to be anything to really push supply, and that is what's going to happen. Yeah, it, it was pandering of the worst kind. I mean, this is if you have we have a situation now where basically we have the TDs looking for a pay rise, and they're looking to give free money to first-time buyers. And some, like, some, some TDs, some TDs. Is this two thousand and three mm. all over again? I mean, Absolutely. you don't even have to look into this country's history. You just have to cast your mind back a decade yep. to see that this is exactly mm. the mentality that brought about the economic catastrophe mm. that's nailed us for the last 10 years. You can't... And particularly when they were talking... And Owen's right, when they were talking about, the, you know, particularly for the new builds, the homes, the only people who benefit from that are the builders. Mm. The and only people who benefit are the builders because the first-time buyers don't because they end up buying an artificially inflated house, which then they... I mean, well, like no, in the house that I live in, when I bought it now, it was about 10 years ago, it was way over the odds. Yes, but, but the, the thing is, we no choice. The irony being that if they're supposed to get 20 grand that's mm. going to help them towards the deposit or towards the cost of the house, sure, it's already been swallowed up because mm. the prices have yeah. gone and up And also, if you can't grand. come up with the 20 grand yourself, well, then maybe you shouldn't be investing in that much money. But there the are house. there are two interventions the government could have made. And again, these were things that got cross-party agreement uh, in the Dáil Housing and Homeless Committee. It's going to take about two years for private sector new bills to get back on track in any significant level. That's universally accepted. So okay. the two, two things government could do now is if they significantly increase the supply of social housing, that would start to free up a lot of private rental housing that has social housing tenants currently living in it. But also we have 189,000 vacant private units across the state, 40,000 here in Dublin. Okay. So increase supply by getting those vacant yeah. units on stock and getting council the building problem, back again. The problem, of course, none of this happens quickly. I just want to finish up by talking about something that's on television, which I know oh, yeah. is very trite, but it's an area, Bernice, mm-hmm. that you yes, have some expertise. Yes, yeah. um, Poldock, I don't know if, if the two gentlemen who are with us are are fans of, of Ross Poldark oh and his shenanigans on the BBC. I hate its objectification of men. <laughs> <laughs> well, I don't, I I, I, of a Sunday night. Of a Sunday yeah. evening, okay. you know, it, it is unfair to have yeah. to look at, uh, yeah. at Aidan Turner. But this scene, well, this, this is evening, a row. This is the... the, the oh, by the way, this is potentially a spoiler alert if you're oh, a fan spo- of... Yes. It's not a huge one. Okay, the Mail uh, headline front page, no means no, Poldark in rape storm. And what they're saying is that there's a scene tonight against spoiler alert... Uh, uh, Ross Paul Dark I haven't this is series 2 I haven't followed series 2 well I've watched it and it's been quite disappointing okay well, I've watched I'm series 1 that out there okay now. but then from series 1 you know that Ross and Elizabeth have this long going sort of you know will they won't they um, apparently there's a scene whereby uh, tonight where she says no several times and he, they, they have sex, and then there is, uh, is it yes, it's rape, and they've got several anti-rape campaigners and violence against women. Various folks have been saying yes, that is. She said no, that should be it. I mean, Sunday night television. So you have the choice between that tonight, or you have the choice you could watch the fall. And there's very, very many pictures of mutilated women in that who have been mutilated and murdered in the most terrific way. So you could do that. Um, 
my preference, I will be watching Tutankhamun. Yes. Which or the Egyptians are long dead. Long dead. Just fellas looking for, for mummies in, in, in pyramids. And that seems fine. I think there is a broader question about why we now have this normalisation in our homes, in dramas, of this extraordinary uh, brutality towards Well, that's down to HBO which has changed the whole TV marketplace since it came on because everybody else had to catch up with HBO because they weren't they, they weren't on cable in America so they didn't have the same rules. So basically all the channels now. But what we're seeing is actually just a rise of of violence just across the board. I mean, you know, if you look at, say, Game of Thrones, I mean, all the controversy with Game of Thrones is about the rape scene and the, the supposed incest scene and things like that. But nobody seemed to have a problem with the sort of, you know, the castration. The and mass the, and, the, and the skinning alive of yes. men and things like that. I don't think, I think there probably is more violence. Um, and I, I agree with you, but I, I find The Fall a really horrible programme now at this stage. But I think there's more, there's more violence in general. And it's more stylized, so therefore it looks better, you know. And um, the funny thing but I don't is think there's a particular move to sort of, you know. The original scene, because Poldark is a remake, the original mm. scene, the rape was much more graphic. And, and the 2016 fudge is that at the end she kind of goes, oh, it's okay. Whereas in reality, it's the same story, it's the same scene. We just seem to have tried to normalize so it. So is it like Straw Dogs? Is it like the scene in Straw Dogs? Is it one of those things? Or I, a rape I, that becomes pleasurable? I, or? Haven't, I haven't seen that, okay. but it, 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 it's, it, it's an odd one, not mm. to say that. But people will watch it anyway and they will have their own opinions. That is it. That's all we have time for on the panel. Bernice Harrison uh, of the Irish Times, Ian O'Darty, columnist with the Irish Independent, and Owen O'Brien, uh, Sinn Fein TD for Dublin Midwest. Thank you very much for joining us. 